sustain what? Here we are at a juncture in human history. When I was born in 1956, there were 2.74 billion people. And uh, now there are eight. Uh, where are you on that chain of development and chain of growth? Are you Which bulge are you in? Um, and where do we go from here uh, now that we've hit the eight billion mark? The United, United Nations is marking this. Tomorrow is eight billion day. Other, other trackers of population say we've already passed that threshold. Um, and I focus less and less on the numbers than on the conditions that the eight billion of us are... are um, immersed in what can we do for lives today that can shape better outcomes forward and not worry so much about you know how many people as what the welfare of humans and and the global ecosystem is i'm andy revkin i'm at the earth institute uh, climate school at columbia university i'm coming to you from uh, wabanaki territory uh, otherwise known as uh, uh, ellsworth maine where i now live and um my guests are a wonderful array of people working really hard at, at elements of this question. So, uh, bonjour, hello. Thanks for being here today. Um, Joe Shami, who, God, the last time I met with you, I think was at the UN, and it was a long time ago, face-to-face, -face, with some students from Pace University. Uh, Joe is a consulting demographer, former director of the United Nations Popula Pop Population Division, author of many books, and publications. Uh, you'll see some of them in a minute. Celine Delacroix is a director of the FP Earth Project of the Population Institute and an adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa's School of Health Sciences. Charles Cabiswa, executive director of Regenerate Africa, a nonprofit group working to rebuild deteriorated social, ecological, health, and economic systems to benefit people, nature, and the climate across Africa. It's great to see you and to meet you. Terry McGovern, a colleague of mine at Columbia University. Uh, she's a professor and chair of the Heilbrunn Department of Population and Family Health and the director of the Program on Global Health Justice and Governance at Columbia Schools, Columbia's Mailman School of Public Health. I was just re-watching an interview I did in 2017 with, uh, with Kirk Smith, uh, at the university, who was passed away a year or two ago who was one of the pioneers in public health um, and pollution. And that, that whole idea of public health is such a vital concept these days. And we'll learn more about that. And Kathleen Mogelgaard, who's president and CEO of the Population Institute, an international nonprofit seeking to promote universal access to family planning information, education, and services. And, uh, you know, so much of what the shift from the days of population bomb, control it, to population quality, enable it, has been profound in, in my lifetime, certainly my, my adult lifetime. Thanks again for being here today, everyone. Um, uh, let's start with uh, Kathleen. Uh, so you have a, uh, an initiative underway uh, beyond 8 billion, and we'll talk about that more in this, you know, going forward. What's, what's the key aspect of this population question uh, that drives you forward? What kept you up last night or woke you up early this morning when you think about this? Thanks so much for initiating this conversation, Andy. I'm really happy to be here and to talk about this population milestone and all of its implications and all of the complexities of it. For me, the things that keep me up 
at night thinking about these questions really are the human side of the population Overpopulation, so long predicted, has stolen a. Sorry about that. <laughs> no worries, no worries. Um, I, for me, the the aspects of population questions that keep me up at night are are multiple. I mean, I think a lot about the ways in which uh, our global environmental challenges need to be addressed, and certainly population trends are one of the important drivers that relate to global environmental challenges that I don't think there is a broad uh, appreciation of and, and the implications of demographic change over time. So that's something that I worry about. And it's a big part of what the Population Institute tries to do is to provide general education about population trends and their implications for society. But the human side of the population questions that really keep me up at night have to do with the unrealized rights and opportunities for women and girls around the world. Um, the more and more that we have worked on this issue, I think the more and more we appreciate just how deeply um, ongoing population growth is connected to a lack of opportunities, services, and rights for women and girls around the world. I know we'll probably talk about that more during this hour, but um, as the Population Institute has been working uh, with partners in the Sahel region of Africa, for example, uh, we are working with an organization that provides safe spaces for adolescent girls in Niger, uh, for married adolescent girls, uh, which in and of itself, I think, is something that's kind of shocking. But when we look at the data, we know that almost one third of girls in Niger are married before the age of 15. And to me, that is something that keeps me up at night because I try to think about what it must be like to, to be a girl in that situation and to have um, the, the inability to have a full breadth of opportunities in one's life. So that has really deep personal individual implications for that girl, but it connects to broader trends of early marriage, of uh, early childbearing and of high fertility that continues to drive rapid population growth across the Sahel region, very youthful age structures that make it difficult for, for governance, as we've seen with a lot of the challenges across the Sahel with civil conflict, um, and then just also really exacerbate some of the climate change vulnerabilities and food security challenges in the region. So those are the kinds of things that keep me up at night. And, and what what drives me crazy personally is everything you just described. There's such glaring opportunities there. There in the clarity, the sort of um, multiple benefit aspects of girls and women's rights and choice just sort of sit there. But then when you dig in and say, well, in each of these regions, in each of these cultures, it's a really tough landscape to for change. And that's that's why I'm glad you and the others here are working on that. Um, Terry uh, at Columbia University, the program you have focused on and your your work as in your life on women's uh, rights and choice uh, it, it goes right from national politics here through these global questions. Uh, how do you uh, when you think about eight billion and beyond that, where do you put what? what propels you forward and, and others at Columbia in that program. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to this conversation. And I pretty much agree with everything that Kathleen said. I, I do think um, the issue of unwanted, unintended pregnancy is a huge issue worldwide. And 
unfortunately, I had we spent a lot of our time the last bunch of years trying to undo the damage of the global gag rule, which was basically, it, you know, it completely disrupted really, really successes that were happening in reducing unwanted pregnancy. So the politicization of kind of governance around access to reproductive health care um, continues to be a huge problem. You know, I this program on global health justice and governance, we're interested in like where is all of this funding going and what goes wrong? Why are countries agreeing to all kinds of international commitments, but still child marriage is legal? So we're doing a lot of work really looking at, oh, if you give all the gender-based violence money to a government that isn't going to fund the groups that are actually challenging the laws that are problematic, or if you sign and ratify a treaty, but you have reservations for matters of personal law, family law, religious law. It just, there's gaps, there's ways all over the place that countries can actually evade the kinds of commitments that they've made and the kinds of commitments that would really begin to address uh, the, the issues we're, we're talking about here. The last thing I'll say is if I look back in my long career in HIV and uh, environmental justice, the, the lack of corporate accountability, the fact that we still do not have a very serious way to hold corporations accountable, I think is one of the biggest issues that we need to take on going forward. And it you know, obviously affects everything. Um, women, girls, vaccine access, intellectual property, um, and obviously the environmental injustices that may in fact end us all. So I'll stop there. Yeah, one thing you mentioned that I see everywhere is that issue of getting resources that are committed at one level to the mm -hmm. distributed the distributed organizations or communities that can put them to best use. This came up just now with the interest, the um, the big batch of climate money in the United States. Right. How do you get it to the communities that need it most, who have the least ability even to know it's there and to uh, uh, put it to work? So that 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 issue of if you have a top-down structure, how does that then spread and ramify where it needs to? is really important. Charles uh, Kabiswa, in, in, uh, you're from Uganda, you're in Rome, uh, it, having been at meetings and the like. Um, you're there building that capacity on the ground with Regenerate Africa. Um, how do you see this issue of 8 billion going, you know, from your standpoint? Where do, where do you go from here when you think about this? Yeah, thank you so much, Andy, and uh, uh, for allowing us uh, to share these insights. Yeah, I am, I am concerned because I, I, I am so familiar and come from landscapes that are prone to climate change, but also most of the communities we work in experience have high fertility rates, of course, across Uganda and East Africa. So uh, we have examples, for instance, in communities in parts of Uganda where we, we, we have, I think in the past, like a few months or five, we even lost over 2,000 people just dying silent in their homes, succumbing to hunger. Most of these are elderly mothers and the children, but also 
50% of some of the region's populations actually facing critical food insecurity. So because of crop failure, so these are very common practices uh, and also climate-related events and the environmental stress which are causing floods, landslides, drought, uh, disruption, displacements and damage and loss of livelihoods. So I'm talking about communities that are experiencing high fertility rates of up to 7.9 and uh, with again low economic status and high climate vulnerability uh, and met need for contraceptives. So uh, looking at this uh, uh, global mark of 8 billion people, it is still scary as me because we are experiencing women, girls, and who are children who are disproportionately more vulnerable. And again, we still have uh, uh, low constructive use. Uh, we have heard from Catherine about the child pregnancies, which are very common in our settings, as well as vulnerability to sexual gender-based violence. All these are right. actually worsening. The, the already existing gender inequalities and limited economic opportunities. So with some of those examples that we are familiar, it, it comes up to even not easy to understand because when we see global fertility rates starting to drop below 2.1, but it is actually not good news uh, in, in most of these communities within actual East Africa. So. I don't see the desired decline happening in such communities, even within the next 10 years. And then what is uh, worrying, much, worrying us mainly is uh, the, the low attention this uh, population dynamics has, uh, has attracted in terms of funding. I think Selene has, has talked about funding, but also the silo mines. Of, 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 of the uh, maybe the politicians, the governments and the civil society. Like uh, we, we don't seem to see the interconnectedness, like appreciating the interconnectedness, even when we don't have all this evidence. So it is still worrying that uh, the attention, the much needed attention is not coming through. Yet in, I think some of you have already seen that the eight countries which have been projected to have the most concentration of operational growth globally, five out of eight are from Africa, including Egypt that is hosting the COP27. So we, we would want to see more of this conversation coming in, some pledges, a lot of integration into uh, the climate ambitions and the development work. So I think these are some th things which are not showing up. And for me, it, it worries me. And, uh, and, and I think it's a great concern. And I'm so happy such conversations are coming out right now. Yeah, that, that, that overlap of countries with high fertility rates and with high vulnerability to hazards, climate, in other words, is troubling to all of you. Uh, Joe, we're going to get to you in a minute, but Celine, uh, tell us a little bit about your work and, and fpearth.org. Yeah, so thank you. Um, what I'm working on is really trying to um, make sure that we uh, harness the benefits of reproductive health and rights on environmental sustainability so that we acknowledge that improving um, reproductive health and rights uh, 
has implications for global sustainability. And that if we make that connection, then we have an opportunity to advance reproductive health and rights by increasing really their legitimacy and, and their, their, their value um, more generally. So there is an opportunity to make them more acceptable by acknowledging that these rights also have sustainability implications, perhaps to new audiences who would otherwise not very much um, concerned with reproductive health and rights, uh, but there's also an opportunity to fund uh, reproductive rights uh, much better by integrating them in environmental and uh, climate change um, funds, for example. So at the FB Earth project, what we do is really, uh, first we try to document um, the science around this interconnection. So I'm, I'm, I'm doing a literature review every year, uh, looking for reliable and trustworthy um, uh, articles or books that really shed light on how um, access to family planning, for example, or information around reproductive health and rights services might influence uh, these broader environmental sustainability uh, outcomes. Um, and, and this work of documenting the science around this is, is very much uh, needed because there is so much controversy still about the, the role of um, population dynamics uh, uh, in generating environmental impact. And I'd say we see that right now with the with this 8 billion passage, uh, there are um, conversations that are very different around around this that are coming out. There's interest, but it's a conflicted interest, I would say. Yeah, I see that at every level. And the media, unfortunately, of which I'm a part, tend to focus on the outlier positions. Um, how many times have we written about population bomb? And now it's sort of population implosion is the other hot topic, thanks to Elon Musk and others. Uh, but it's glad I'm glad that they're the folks here again are trying to pull together the data, take away the spin. Uh, Joe Joe Shami, you've been at this for many decades, and probably over is it over half a century? Should, dare I say? I should unmute. I think, uh, let me see if I can unmute you or uh, you're muted, Joe. Look. Yeah, hit that little button. It's, uh, I can't do it for you, I think. Do you see the little icon? Try one more time. Uh... You're still muted, um, and I can't unmute you. Let me just see. I'm going to make sure I can't do it myself. It's a little, you know, microphone icon. Uh, just look at the sound. Um. You can also press control D to control B. Oh, I control D as in dog. Try that, Joe. If not, um, 
you could come back try to come back in yeah if you leave and come back in that might work I, I'm, I'm trying to do it on my own i can only unmute you if i muted you <laughs> um Joe, I'm going to put you in the green room for a minute and see if we can try to like exit completely and come back in and we can start again. That would be great. Um, hold on. Hopefully he can come back. Um, he's a vital voice and source of, uh, I've been writing about his work for, for a very long time. Um, I want to go back to the overarching question of, well, it's come up come up a couple of times here. Um, Celine, uh, your work seems to be to articulate the multiple benefits and then help to help drive more resources, right? But how how does that work? I, I find the sustainable development goals. There's so much crossover. But at the same time, it seems hard to actualize that. Uh, so I don't know. And Terry, you were talking about this too. Um, how do we actually get this not just onto agendas, but have programs like uh, what Charles is working on, others who are working on in the field uh, actually have the resources that would be needed to uh, make progress? Maybe we'll just go around the room here briefly on that point because it's really important. Maybe can I can I start? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, for sure. I I think that the, the the first step in this is really um, a change. My my husband always says that I say that way too much, but a change of paradigm uh, that we really need to accept and acknowledge that population dynamics and demography have these a very large broader sustainability implications. Um, and at the moment, while this is uh, this is acknowledged at many levels, it's not. It is it, this is not a unifying discourse. It is not a discourse that we all agree on. Uh, we I would say that we today everybody agrees that recycling is something good, and we've we've seen this increasing number of people walking around the streets with a bag that says this bag is green, I am recycling. And there was really a, a shift in the way we, we, we um, our relation with objects and we understood that we really needed to recycle. Now, it, in terms of demography, we haven't accepted that uh, the, the size of the global population mattered for sustainability. And I think that until we, we reach that consensus and we make, it, we make that message clear, then um, our chances at really implementing the benefits that these connections might have for, for example, reproductive health and rights are, are limited or will always be fraught. Um, so I would say first and foremost, we need to agree on that. Yay. <laughs> I, I, yeah, and I think your your microphone's on now. So uh, we were, Joe, we were just talking about um, how to actualize getting the resources to these other facets of a problem, whether it's climate or uh, health, that relate to uh, women's choice, uh, relate to family size. How do we actualize getting that into the discussions around something like a 
climate resilience or or public health. Good. Can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah, it's great. Thank you. Yeah. Sorry about the sure. technical issues. Uh, sorry about technical issues as well. Uh, uh, let me begin. I had a couple of remarks to start. I'll get to that question about the research. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Andy, for hosting this. I'm always glad when you're doing this. Um, second observation is that you have much grayer hair than we last saw each other. Uh, <laughs> good sign. Doing very well. Um, yeah, I've been doing this for like 200 years, I think. Uh, the <laughs> and uh, I have a couple of comments. First, um, uh, we've really gone through a remarkable 20th century. Uh, it's really impressive. I, I don't think most people understand the, the remarkable changes that have occurred. I mean, the, the improvements of life expectancies is just really remarkable. And people take that for granted. Uh, you know, living longer, healthier lives. Uh, and you look at the life expectancy at birth and you see the enormous changes. It's really impressive. Second, uh, this transition to low fertility, uh, uh, men and women having now the ability to control the fertility, uh, that's something that wasn't uh, going on before the 20th century. We have uh, IUDs, pills, controls, uh, education. Uh, and that's really, really an impressive achievement uh, that we made with fertility and mortality. The other aspect uh, of uh, population, of course, is uh, migration. And we haven't got a handle on that yet. We're, we're still struggling uh, on this immigration issue. Every parts of the world, Europe, North America, Africa, Asia. Uh, and I come back to that. But I want to make a point that this 20th century uh, that we finished just uh, a couple of decades ago was outstanding demographically. And I was very fortunate as demographer to be working during that period where we grew almost quadrupled, four times the growth uh, during that century. And we're still growing, but at a slower pace. So the 20th century was the century of remarkable growth. And what we have to realize now, that growth continues. And the nonsense and the, uh, crazy remarks we hear from people that the growth is over, we're having an implosion, it won't be in their lifetimes. Uh, in the immediate future, we're going to get another one or two billion more people at least. And I'm prepared to make wagers about that. I bet anybody a pizza, a large pizza from New York, <laughs> that we're going to have many more people in five or 10 years than we're having today. I haven't had anyone take me up on that offer. <laughs> uh, the other issue is uh, uh, population has consequences every sphere of life. Human rights, climate, environment, politics, culture. Uh, language, uh, economic, social, every aspect of life, uh, we have consequences, and some benefit and some don't from those consequences. And these people that are arguing now that we need more people, more more people, they're arguing that because they're benefiting from having more people, more labor, more consumers, and so on. The environmentalists and most scientists are saying that we're having enormous impact on the climate, and we have to do something about that. I think that's an important message. Now, about the resources, I think one of the things I find is the messaging uh, and the way we put this out is not up to date. Uh, the younger generations are used to faster items, more clever, uh, uh, more uh, graphic, uh, simpler to understand. And too often, and my, my work included, has been too uh, academic, too esoteric, uh, and it's difficult to get that message across. So what happens is we have these, these policymakers and important uh, uh, celebrities making crazy remarks to get headlines, 
and uh, sort of pushing away the important messages that the, our colleagues on this panel are making. Um, human rights, for example, uh, uh, and the inequities and inequalities around the world, uh, the uh, inability of some people to have a, a sufficient resources for housing, food, and, and employment. All these issues are put secondary to some of the remarks that we start hearing. And then finally, uh, with regard to the resources, one of the major obstacles is that the, the politicians and many of the officials have a very short term. Their short term perspective is, you know, weeks, months, the next election. Uh, whereas we demographers, a year is too short of a time to look at anything. You need nine months to have a baby, for heaven's sakes. You can't make a decision in two weeks about something so important. So we have to get them to have a longer term perspective. And many of them, of course, kick the can down the street, postponing it. Uh, for example, right now, uh, in the U.S. and many countries, they're talking about pensions, Social Security, aging, and so on. Uh, and they don't want to talk about that, politicians, because it doesn't get them votes. But this has to be addressed very soon. Also, the issue of human rights and what's going on with reproduction, making family planning available, uh, getting people having abilities to choose the number of spacing. That has to be said over and over so that the politicians don't forget that. Um, so those are some of my remarks. On, on the resources, I would say there are plenty of resources, financial resources. They're just in the wrong place. Uh, 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 the profits are going to these people that have more money than they could ever spend. Uh, the uh, private enterprises, the companies, they have profits that, that, that's their primary goal, which is fine. The profits are excessive. We have to have a more equitable distribution of those resources and taking account of the inequalities in the world. I've talked too long, but that's not unusual. I usually get going too far. <laughs> Well, let, let's get back to this question of uh, getting this on the actual agendas. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show a slide that I think, to me, has been pointed out to me by um, people who deal in disaster risk all the time. And it's, it's just a different way of looking at an issue like climate change that I think helps to break fo build forward the idea of vulnerability and exposure, meaning how many people and how resilient they are or not including uh, family size and the like. And essentially, you know, we think about climate change, which I've written about since the 80s, global warming, it's important, blah, blah, blah. But if you think about climate risk, if you put the word risk in the foreground, then this formula comes out. Risk is the hazard uh, times exposure, how many people or how much stuff, factoring in vulnerability. And it kind of changes everything if that's in the foreground instead of, so if it's stop, if it's reduced climate risk instead of slow global warming, you end up with a very different picture. And I just want to see if that resonates for, for you, uh, each of you in some way or other. Um, this is a slide again I put together with the help of some folks a while ago. Are we thinking too much about the hazard and not enough about who's at risk? Maybe Charles first. Yeah, thank you so much. <clears throat> and I, I like that uh, what you've just projected now, and I think that's what uh, I think Selin referred to as mindset and a very, very typical in even our conservation work where we, we press, uh, we place population pressure high into our literature as a cause of uh, environmental loss or degradation. 
Why then in the end of the day, we don't want to be part of the solution. So I think that is the missing point now. Or, uh, the, the mindset, that kind of silo uh, mentality. And, and uh, I, I still agree again with yours, full talked about uh, how all this kind of intersect. And uh, I just want to give one example. We have been struggling in our country, Uganda, to bring uh, uh, the integration of uh, population dynamics into the climate agenda. And I think at one point when we are engaging the crafters of the national, national climate change policy, we, they told us we would not see where the, the population and the family planning fit in the entire document of the policy because it seems like it is everywhere. And, and I think this is actually the, the mindset that we, we, we see. So at the end of the day, when they were drafting the policy, they had to put it as a cross priority cross-cutting theme and and and, and this is uh, this is uh, this is what we are talking about right now is uh, we, we even from the projection you've just shared we are not looking much into the vulnerability it is more in isolation and the focus is actually more on the hazard and maybe the risk but now who is at more vulnerable uh, who is more at vulnerable who is more at risk I think that is something that would seem to be missing and and, and again the 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 the, the, the multi-sectoral the interconnectedness is not coming out and also Selin talked about the documentation I also heard from my colleague Joseph talking about the, the messaging the packaging not coming out and reaching out to the to the policymakers and also the in development practitioners I think the documentation of that interconnectedness is actually the biggest problem. We all appreciate and we all know it is a problem, but then how and where to fit it is the question. So Kathleen, I uh, uh, wanted to swing back to you on this too, because COP27 is underway and uh, for another almost a week. Um, COP28 will be in the, in the Middle East. So in the developing country, um, is there, what, what, how would you see this? What would success look like? I guess this is a question I would say. Would I? <laughs> that, that's a big question. I mean, I do think that, um, you know, getting back to your framing of climate risk and vulnerability, I think we are gradually as a global community coming to appreciate uh, the idea of the climate crisis and what it means to respond to the climate crisis. Um, and we're seeing that more and more in the context of the international negotiations. You know, early on in the COPs, it was all about climate change mitigation, you know, the kinds of uh, responses that can help shift our energy sources and reduce emissions. Uh, in recent years, there's been a lot of progress in uh, ensuring that responding to the climate crisis is mitigation and adaptation. Um, figuring out ways to help communities cope with the climate change impacts we're already experiencing. And I think now we're even beginning to see more and more attention to the third category of loss and damage. So responding to the climate crisis has these three buckets of action that are mitigation, adaptation, and loss and damage. So I think 
that in in and of itself is success in terms of thinking about how we respond to the totality of the climate crisis. It means that we need to acknowledge that we are already experiencing climate change impacts and those impacts are only going to get worse as we continue in this bucket of mitigation, right? So, and for those of us who are interested in population dynamics and how that relates to the climate crisis, this is a really important connection that we can and should be doing more education around how population dynamics connects to climate change vulnerability. And in my mind, the better we are able to tell those stories, the better we will be able to advocate for climate change resources to support the kind of broad suite of things that relate to climate change vulnerability, including population dynamics. So in places where um, a lack of access to family planning and reproductive health care, in places where deep gender inequity underlie those trends that are driving rapid population growth, I think it's very reasonable that climate change adaptation funds could support multi-sectoral responses that would include integrating uh, access to family planning where women and girls don't have that access, that would include uh, other things that help to elevate the status of women and girls. And I've been really impressed by the, I, I know Charles and his colleagues in Uganda have been working very hard to draw these connections and to shape uh, climate change, national adaptation strategies to be inclusive of understanding what the population dynamics are, what the drivers of persistent rapid population growth are, and to also highlight the ways in which empowering women and girls is something that builds adaptive capacity in the present and also leads to population shifts over time that increase the, that reduce the overall scale of human vulnerability and increase resilience and adaptive capacity at the same time. So I think we have a lot to do in terms of telling that story and shifting that paradigm, documenting the evidence base that is out there that Celine was talking about, um, and just ensuring that we're communicating that to decision makers in the appropriate places who have their hands on the levers of resources that could be allowing resources to flow to these kinds of innovative responses that we know work and that can generate results and that are good for people in the short term and can bend the curve of the population trajectory over the long term, which is also good for people, but will also reduce uh, the scale of human vulnerability to climate change impacts over time. Um, I wanted to get a sense of what academia can do. Uh, Terry, uh, you know, we have this climate school still emerging at Columbia. Uh, Celine, you're at the University of Ottawa. Um, what do we, what can we do in academia to help um, concretize and facilitate action yeah. along these lines? Anything? Yeah. So, I mean, I think for one thing, um, I when I first joined Mailman, there was amazing meetings of environmental scientists talking about climate change, but there was no, absolutely no discussion of, you know, who pays, corporate accountability, how we actually change the regulatory system, you know, how, you know, regulatory systems mean there's different, you can't harmonize data. You know, there's there's so much that's about governance, right? Um, and, and frankly, uh, you know, also true in the migration context, right? We don't have an international agreement that bestows any kind of status on people who have to move because of the climate disaster, right? Um, 
So I think academia really is very important here, but we have to move out of our silos and we have to work across discipline. And that's very much what I've been trying to do. It's not easy uh, because we speak totally different languages, <laughs> um, but I think it's absolutely essential. Um, and I think uh, one of the things that I think is a problem currently in the US is that of course, in the abortion context, everybody's saying, let's fund the ground, let's fund the ground, let's fund people to move women across states, etc. But we actually need to step back and look at strategy. And academia play, has a really important, important role in, in that. Um, so I think we're critical. Yeah, you're reminding me, I think it was a year and a half ago on this program, I had on Michael Doyle, who... Mm -hmm. um, at Columbia has been yeah. the uh, working on this idea of a model international mobility convention. Right. I know, and Joe, you deal with this issue a lot in your writing. Um, I remember I, I wrote about your work in, way back in 2009 on like, what's the right number of Americans? This was before immigration became a super hot issue. So we have, we have the vulnerability reduction in place as a, as a strategy and a priority and my sort of mobility as a strategy and priority too. Uh, Joe, for you, uh, what, what's the possibility here? Um, the point about the resources and the decision maker, I think is really important. Um, their focus is usually on the economy or political cons considerations. When a war breaks out, like we're seeing a uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, it takes headlines, it's an important issue, and it spills over in terms of refugees, migrants, uh, deaths, and so on, and a lot of resources going on there. On the population issue, we, we've been talking about this for, for decades. It doesn't really resonate very far with a lot of these political decision makers and government officials. How do we get them to resonate on these issues? Uh, recently, we had the COVID pandemic, and that showed them that uh, demography mortality can have a big impact on the economy, and they should respond. Similarly, this rapid growth that Charles talking about in Africa fertility, that's going to have an enormous impact on African economies. There's no question about it. But the model that they have is basically an antiquated economic model of continued GNP growth, more growth, more money, more profits, and that's the model they have. And we're not in the room when they make those decisions. Mm -hmm. To get in the room, you have to say something that gets their attention. For example, we're going to have a billion people displaced and they're coming to your neighborhood. You know, this is what's going to get their attention. What are you going to do with these people that are in Africa, the Middle East? They run out of water. The climate's too hot. They're having flooding. And they all want to go to France or to the U.S. or Indiana. Uh, they have to start addressing this. We have one immediately now in the U.S. what to do about Haiti. Haiti is the only least developed country in the Western Hemisphere, and the uh, politicians don't know what to do. Send them back, keep them, open the borders. Now, these issues touch on human rights, individual uh, 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 responsibilities, uh, nationalism, uh, on the international migration cooperation. That's basically done very little over the last five, ten years. We haven't done much at all because of national sovereignty. And the thing that's ironic is that the people uh, are pressuring, especially in Europe and the developed countries, they want to increase the birth rates, but they don't want any migrants. They want people of their own. Right. 
And this type of thing goes into his cultural uh, biases, uh, people pressing to having a larger population because we want more of us and less of them. So that's a, a different cultural aspect of this dimension. There are so many types of things that have to be done, but we have to get into the room to talk to those decision makers so that we can sort of deal with the economic message that the economists keep telling them, which is we need more growth, more GNP, we need more of this. And you'll see it all the time. Uh, uh, when we get off this program and go to the news, you'll see another celebrity talking about either uh, 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 the economy is going too slowly, we have inflation and so on. Those are important issues. But this issue of 8 billion people and that we're growing and the inequities, if you look at what's going on in countries like Niger, Haiti, uh, uh, Bangladesh, uh, uh, Pakistan, all over the world, they're living in conditions that are very, very difficult. And there's going to be an enormous, enormous clash between the people that want out, estimated at about a billion people that want to move to another country, and those people are saying, no, you can't come in. So that's going to have spillover effects, and maybe that's one way to get attention to policymakers. We have to do something about the climate. We have to do something about the resources. We have to have some kind of program to help these countries so that they have mitigation processes and also address these big issues. Boy, there's some really important points there. Um, this you, you brought up, and I know you wrote a piece about this idea of, uh, well, let me just back up. Along to 2007, I wrote a piece based on your work uh, where I said the world was splitting into sort of imploders and exploders. It was, there was population cluster bombs as opposed to like Paul Ehrlich's old style bomb. And just now, uh, Terry, and we were all talking about mobility and resistance to it. Um, it what factors could shift that? Uh, you, you're implying necessity will that countries, the powerful countries, Europe and the United States will uh, face more pressure if, of various kinds if they don't. But is there another path besides necessity, like getting to that crisis point? What, what can we do with... Uh, well, if you look right. at the headlines, Andy, at, at this morning, BBC, European News, Frontex, the immigration, they're not talking about the uh, uh, conference in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. They're talking about what's going down in, uh, on the shores of Italy, uh, what's going on in Greece, Malta, and so on. That's what's really, uh, uh, now the discussions between France and the UK about the migrants, that's what's really driving their politicians and the rise of the, the far right in those countries. So if it's France or Italy or, or Poland or the UK, uh, they are not on the headlines talking about uh, the consequences of climate change for sub-Saharan Africa or, or North Africa or South Asia. They're talking about what's happening at their borders and their shores. So I've been using that as a, a method to get their attention and saying, Let's address some of these big issues, some of these big issues that are causing these problems so that you won't have to be dealing with these issues. Most people and most of the parties in these countries are not responding to uh, global warming as rapidly as I would hope they would. But they're very, very concerned now about what's happening at their borders and their shores. And I think that's one mechanism we can get to them to addressing the whole issue of uh, 8 billion people, what types of issues that have to be addressed, uh, human rights, social issues, resources, climate change. And um, otherwise, they're going to go back to business as normal. 
uh, talking about uh, economy, jobs, more GNP, and more profits for those companies that have already so much profits that they don't know what to do with the money. So let's, we're, we're getting toward the end of the hour. We could go a little bit longer if anyone can, but uh, maybe I'll, I'll go around the room here and just get a sense of, um, these are obviously systemic challenges. There's no magic bullet, no special report that I could write or the BBC will put on the air that will change things. But there are these, I think Joe made a really important point about uh, taking advantage of these crises, at least to illustrate what the risks are if you don't deal with family planning and with vulnerability reduction. Um, so maybe uh, we'll just sort of go around here. So one last sense of one or two things we could do either together or could convey that could move the ball a little bit forward so that we're not so siloed. We're not just talking about climate change. Uh, we're getting leaders to understand uh, the opportunity and not just the, the risk. Uh, uh, Celine, you know, from your standpoint at the University of Ottawa, what what's a, what are one or two things to really work on? Or... Um, I, well, I think as uh, Terry and Joe alluded to, they've talked about some of the of the of the difficulties of addressing this the the, the issue of mobility migration. For example, is as Joe said it. It's something that people care very deeply about. It's it's uh, it's making the headlines, perhaps instead of other 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 things that we should also cover and worry about. And and we see that this is related to um, populism, and that all these questions of population are associated with questions of race, uh, of migration, of sex, of gender. There, there is a, such a very uh, wide variety of education, women empowerment, etc. It's so difficult to address these topics uh, altogether. It's impossible, and so we end up uh, faced with a. Um, from academia perspective, it's very difficult because we are siloed. We we are we are part of a department that focuses on health. I cannot apply for funding for uh, something that's outside of the scope of a funding agency, etc. And I'm also always at the crossroads of all of these. So it's very difficult. Um, but I, I would say that our unifying um, point here is environmental degradation and climate change, which kind of is an overarching crisis that, that trickles down on all of these questions and that can serve as a wake-up call to really integrate demography and population dynamics and, and its solutions uh, in our development agendas. Um, yeah, that's how I, how I see it. And Charles, uh, is there something I can do to help your program or, you know, as a communicator or what, what comes to mind as uh, uh, next five years thing is a pathway to take uh, on this issue? Yes, uh, thank you so much. And uh, I find already this platform uh, a very, very strategic one to reach out to uh, different types of audience, of course, globally, because uh, so many practitioners tune in and, and they follow these conversations. So first and foremost, we need to keep this alive, but also continuing documenting and generating evidence to inform uh, the policy and the practice because as we said that uh, the, the message is not yet 
uh, being is as doesn't trickle down to the maybe police makers or some of them uh, are not uh, are not very sure what to do about this but uh, I, I find uh, uh, the, the dissemination and the documentation of this to be very very practical one way of trying to bring uh, uh, different audiences together but also there are a number of uh, avenues uh, even you talked about the COP, but also they are very, very strategic national level uh, opportunities or windows where we can continue the conversation, like engaging the national determined contribution processes. I think most of you are aware of the NDCs, which reflect in national climate plans. And uh, we have done this in Uganda where population dynamics has been integrated into the NDCs. And these are more of uh, enabling environments to that can help us to advance most of these conversations but also uh, another kind of low hanging fruits is also to try to bring these messages to the national adaptation plan processes which are again ongoing or being reviewed by different countries uh, again uganda is, uh, is, uh, is, uh, is, uh, is uh, we are focused on that as well but there has been also tested the uh, uh, kind of models that integrate population dynamics and environment, like the, the population health and environmental integration models. I think we just need to see how we can continue documenting this and also scaling them up. So the, the, the platform we are on is actually one of the ways on how we can bring this message to the the target audience and I find it very very appropriate and uh, and the timely for now. I also wanted to briefly to hint on 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 the COP the COP that is taking place. For me, I thought that this is going to be more of a revival to bring back now the population and climate conversations on the platform because it is happening in a country that actually hosted a, a, another landmark event in 1994. That is the International Conference on Population and Development. But again, the same country is hosting an event at 8 billion mark, global population mark. But it is among, again, the eight countries that have been spotted or in the bracket of, uh, of, uh, of uh, where we are going to experience the most concentrated population growth globally. So I, I find all of these uh, a kind of interconnectedness coming out to again justify some of the players like us who want to bring this into the spotlight. So we are watching what comes next out of the COP, but we are very, very passionate to see how we can revive this conversation to see that it is not, uh, it is not siloed, it mm -hmm. is integrated into the uh, climate adaptation proposals and the programming. And then we want to see uh, a global attention on the on the on the on the population dynamics, and and I think that is very very important to 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 know how the COP has gone with this one. I think that is something I wanted to add before, uh, for now. That's just great. Uh, by the way, I just was poking over at Twitter, and it's interesting. Twitter, for all of its problems, is a place where that interrelationship can take place just as we just saw there it's there's simultaneous events going on there's lots of crossover so finding ways to have those 
the intersections build the conversations across uh, from one to the other, I think is really valuable. That's why I haven't given up on Twitter yet myself. Um, just had to note that. Um, again, so Terry, uh, you know, there's probably more I can do in my little initiative and with the with your population and health group. Um, but what, you know, what would success look like the next few years? Uh, what would your students or your partners, uh, so, what can we move yeah. on? I apologize. I have to go because I've attended. Yeah, yeah. I think, I, think um, I do think that we have to have a kind of candid assessment of the limitations of donors, the limitations of the UN system around corporate accountability, around government being a member driven entity. I think um, we have to understand the limitations of data systems. <laughs> And I do think that I've seen the most movement on the kind of most intractable, you know, intersecting issues when social movements are, are, are in the picture. We saw this in AIDS around uh, trips and intellectual property. So I do think we, that's a really important component that doesn't, it has other, there are lots of problems in that arena as well, but, but there's a vast potential for us to be working much more closely uh, around governance issues with social movements. Um, so I see huge, vast potential there. Great. Well, Terry, it's great that you could you. join. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you all. And We uh, can do a follow-up sometime, okay. too. Okay. Thank you. Take care. Um, Joe, uh, a last thought from you, and then Kathleen, you'll close the uh, conversation. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Andy. I, I'm disappointed. I, I couldn't argue with my colleagues on this panel. I was hoping that I could take something and we could have a good discussion argument. But I am in agreement with almost everything they've been saying. Uh, uh, and um, so that's a bit of a disappointment this morning here at six o'clock in Portland, Oregon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have uh, one or two points. First, uh, we have to tell people that what's going on is going to affect them personally. That's the message. It's going to affect you. It's not going to be, it's not my problem. It is your problem. It's going to affect you. And so for different people, you may have to may say it differently. Uh, it's going to affect you at the borders. It's going to affect you in, in classrooms. It's going to affect you in, in a health clinic. It's going to affect you everywhere. So that would be my message to these people, to get them to be alerted. And with that message, I would put the, the officials and the politicians accountable. They have to be able to address this. These are the people that are, have the control over the resources and the policy decisions. And we have to make them realize that these things are not academic. They're not minor issues. Fortunately, COVID proved to them that demography and mortality can have an enormous impact on the world. So these factors that are going on right now, especially as we hit 8 billion, are not simply issues that you deal with in papers and articles and on journals. These are real life issues affecting every man, woman, and child. And we have to look at it globally. Situation in Africa, as Charles was saying, is very different than it is in Scandinavia. Uh, and the, the diversity also is gonna affect our policies now. So uh, I guess my point is a uh, simple message telling them these trends are going to affect you directly and you have to start responding now. Absolutely. Well, Joe, we should do some follow-ups for sure. Uh, this, the, um, some case studies of how that plays out. The, and it's, by, by the way, for the better or the worse, you know, labor gaps, there are opportunities in all of this for people to think about too that, and understand it's yes. not just the crisis component. 
one final example, you'll notice the U.S. headlines were dominated when they moved, I don't know, scores of migrants from Florida and Texas up to Massachusetts, Martha's Vineyard. That dominated the news. It dominated the attention of policymakers in Congress. Similarly, we have to dominate the news and headlines on these issues, human rights, family planning, climate change, environment, and the consequences in order to get them to take action. Absolutely. Well, thanks for being here today, too. And um, hold on. Let me just get this set up, too, one more time. Um, Kathleen, where does your organization uh, dead set on the next few years? We are dead set on continuing to do this kind of education. And I'm really grateful again to you, Andy, for providing a platform for this conversation. I'm really grateful for the work that Joe has been doing to raise the level of awareness and literacy around demographic trends. His series in IPS is remarkable and I think really important for us to be continuing to educate the general public and policymakers around demographic trends and why they matter, because they are things that will affect everyone in every corner of the world, whether you live in a place that's currently experiencing rapid population growth or whether you live in a place that is experiencing slow growth or degrowth. I mean, these are things that have deep implications for our lives. I'm really grateful for the work that Celine is doing to try to bust through academic silos and document evidence and communicate around that. And Charles is playing such a leadership role in thinking about how to integrate population dynamics into national adaptation plans and other national climate change responses. I think we need to do a lot more to be supporting um, our advocates and experts and practitioners in developing countries who are really can and should be leading the way in making these connections, drawing the ways in which uh, population dynamics and reproductive health and rights connect to uh, broader sustainable development concerns. I mean, this this is something that does need to come from the ground up, and Charles and his colleagues are providing a really excellent example of how that can be done. But I think we also have a role to play in the United States as Americans. We could be doing more advocacy with our own U.S. government, and this is something that I think a lot of people do not appreciate is that the US government used to be a leader, used to be a global leader in providing reproductive health and voluntary family planning services to people around the world. Um, it's something that has really underpinned a lot of the dramatic progress we've seen in the last decades that Joe was talking about at the top of the hour. And yet I think the United States has relinquished its leadership role in the realm of international family planning and reproductive health. Funding for family planning and reproductive health as part of US foreign assistance has been stagnant for the last decade. And these are investments that have huge returns, um, but we're, we're not doing enough with our Congress and with our administration to really push for ramped up funding at this moment when we need it most. We have the largest generation in history just entering its childbearing years, and there's more that our government could be doing to provide support to countries around the world that want to be able to extend reproductive health and family planning services to communities that don't yet have meaningful access to those services. So that's kind of where I will close. And I think this kind of um, storytelling that we're doing, this conversation about how um, these investments and population dynamics connect to broader development concerns, we just need to be doing more and more of that and in a more forceful way that shows how it matters to people's lives. Well. Thank you so much for being here today. 
uh, Terry McGovern, who had to leave from Columbia Public Health, Joe Shammy, keep up that great writing. Uh, you, uh, you're indefatigable, you, you know, at this, and it's incredibly important to have you out there. Uh, Chris, Chris, Kathleen from Population Institute, Charles from uh, Regenerate Africa, and Celine De Delacroix from uh, University of Ottawa and FP Earth. I'm just going to close by playing the uh, video, um, one of the videos you guys have up at uh, Population Institute. And you can all hang in there for another minute or two or just uh, pop away. Uh, we'll do more on this for sure. This is just every one of these con sustain what conversations I do is the beginning of something. And I try to iterate forward in ways we can uh, get, get more impact. So stay, uh, stay with it. Here we go. Well, let me, oh, how about the volume? These two trends interact in ways that are incredibly important, but often overlooked. Climate change and population dynamics are interacting in complex ways that will shape the context of our collective future. Everything from the future of trade and economic prosperity, the future of peace and stability, where people live, the food they eat, the choices they make for the future. Neither climate change nor population dynamics are operating in a vacuum, and yet we continue to silo them in conversations. Population is growing most rapidly in parts of the world where people are highly vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. Here are the countries with population growth rates that are more than twice the global average. And here are countries that are ranked most vulnerable to the negative impacts of climate change. And here is where these two trends overlap. As it so happens, many of the communities and nations that are not covered by these early warning systems are also parts of the world that are experiencing rapid population growth, making those communities and nations more vulnerable now and in the future. This is a significant incidence of injustice for communities and nations that have contributed the least to the problem of climate change are expected to suffer some of the worst consequences of climate change now and even more so in the future. We can and should be doing more to respond to these challenges in ways that build people's resilience in the near term and create conditions for greater sustainability and human well-being over time. Providing greater support to climate change responses that center opportunities, services, and rights for women and girls is one promising approach. We developed a very simple set of interventions. We are not specialists, but we, we developed training on, on gender rights for rural women and for young girls so that they can voice their demands for, for environmental protection and for their own health. We also developed a network of rural clinics for, for women that basically provide sexual and reproductive health, including family planning, so that these young women and these young girls can choose freely how many kids they can they want to have, how, how big they wanted their families to be. We also developed a scholarship program uh, that gives a very small amount of money so that young girls are not given into forced marriages at very early ages, 12, 13, 14, so that they can finish their high school education, so that they can become nurses, that they can become teachers, and they can become, they can realize their dreams. What's really great from a, a climate and governance standpoint is those efforts at family planning, reproductive health, and education yield tremendous social and economic dividends that can really help make communities more resilient in the face of environmental change. It's a win-win-win. 
Uganda has been able, for instance, to integrate uh, cooperation dynamics in the national determined contributions and also developed the national cooperation policy that integrates cooperation health and environment. We have also had very great success in terms of uh, integrating family planning and SRHR into, uh, in, in, into the national climate change policy, but also a number of policy frameworks and uh, that have been in place like the cooperation health and environmental frameworks and other frameworks. Investing in strategies that expand opportunities, services, and rights for women and girls, particularly their rights to education and health services, including family planning, can build their resilience and that of their families and communities. Over time, such investment can bend the population growth curve downward, creating greater prospects for a more just and sustainable future for all. Cooperation and, and climate change is reaching this critical uh, levels. There has never been good time than now to kind of heavily invest in, uh, in access to health care rights, best voluntary family planning and education and uh, promoting uh, equality. All of these have to be integrated into climate interventions. They are very, very important. With these complex problems will not be solved with a with a single pronged approach. And I think that the, the key lesson here is that we need systemic and dynamic strategies that in a single village will bring together all the solutions. Around the world, there are people and organizations and governments that are doing remarkable, innovative, effective work to help women, girls, and other marginalized communities better claim their rights and achieve greater opportunity in their lives. This work needs more of our support. The Day of Eight Billion tells us that this is the kind of effort we need to be scaling up all around the world so that we can achieve greater health and well-being for people and the planet beyond Eight Billion. Great. Thanks so much, uh for being here today, all of you. Again, this is the Columbia Climate School Sustain Wet webcast. I'm Andy Revkin. Uh, and uh, the more of this, the better. Um, and I think a key to me is focusing less on the debates about what the future will be like, doom or, or, or progress, and more about what can be done on the ground today using the skills you have, whatever you are, to make a difference um, in that trajectories. A friend of mine, Sylvia Fibich, is a midwife in Colorado. She just got back from a month in Ecuador where she's working on a very simple thing. Um, this just came to mind because it's so relevant. Um, getting midwifery in Ecuador, particularly in indigenous communities, to better deal with the first minute of a baby's birth. Uh, this is something like a million deaths from respiratory uh, mm -hmm. failure in that one moment, the, that one minute, uh, and spreading the capacity for uh, better outcomes there again is, is part of the progress uh, here too, just as one little vignette. Thanks again. Go forth into this day and tomorrow, the day of 8 billion, and uh, whatever comes forward. Joe, uh, Kathleen, Celine, Charles, take care. Thanks for listening. I'm Andy Revkin. This audio is from my Sustain What webcast, which I produce as part of my communication initiative at Columbia University's Climate School. Subscribe and get in touch with feedback or ideas for future discussions at revkin.substack.com.
If you've gotten this far, a song is in order. So here's my tune, Liberated Carbon. It took a thousand generations for our species to rise But gathering and hunting was no way to get by We yearned to burn more than dung and sticks Then someone came along and said, hey, try lighting this He opened up the ground and showed us coal and oil Said, come liberate some carbon, it'll make your blood boil Liberated carbon, it'll spin your in my SUV We can light up the planet like a Christmas tree Yeah, they say that things are getting hot but hey, we've got AC Liberated carbon, it'll spin your Turn on a machine We send an army to the desert 